Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Heather Exner Perot, the Director of Energy, Natural Resources, and the Environment at the McDonald laurie Institute, a special advisor to the Business Council of Canada, and a leading policy thinker on a set of issues that sit at the intersection between climate change, energy, and Indigenous economic development. I'm grateful to speak with her about these issues, including how we ought to think about the possible trade-offs between them, what she means when she talks about energy policy in an age of pragmatism, and why mining on the moon is something that Canada should prioritize. Heather, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Great to be here, Sean. Let's start with the subject of trade-offs. The Trudeau government has often said that the environment and the economy go hand in hand. It's a nice thought, but it seems to me that it risks precluding a more useful debate about the inherent trade-offs between ambitious climate goals, the cost of the energy transition, and the best means to mitigating those costs, including for specific industries and their workers. You've written, for instance, that the notion of a so-called just transition has, quote, no basis in economic reality, unquote. As a starting point, how do you think about these questions? What are some of the trade-offs inherent to our climate goals, and how should we think about them? Yeah, so I would say for, you know, most of the last 200 years, we didn't think about the environment, certainly not about the climate, as any kind of externality, you know, it was just, you were kind of ravaging and, and surviving, you know, for most of human history, all we did was survive. And the environment was a secondary factor, certainly for Indigenous peoples. And I've learned this lesson, the, you know, caring for the environment was pretty critical to them surviving. For farmers, caring for the environment is pretty critical to their survival. But, you know, in terms of industrialization, it was kind of, you know, use the resources that you could. And so, and so there was an imbalance, certainly. And so I think since the, you know, since the 70s, since the 60s, certainly there's been an environmental movement to kind of recenter, and that's been very good. But now we've gotten, I think, in the last 10 years into, you know, some, you know, some kind of, kind of the green fantasy establishment where almost every policy, almost every discussion is centered through a lens of climate change. And now we're starting to see, you know, there was an awakening. I think most people in the global south, most governments in the global south, you know, thought there was some other, you know, some other balancing that needed to be considered in Europe and Canada, in some parts, the United States, not as much because we weren't surviving anymore because you could take for granted all that material well-being. But now I think after the Russian war has been the opening to rebalance the conversation, as they say, make it more pragmatic that energy poverty is a real thing. Energy security is a real thing. We cannot live today in 2023 without fossil fuels. Probably one or two billion of us could live without fossil fuels and the other couple billion, if we had no fossil fuels tomorrow would die within a year. 
And so to think about how do we manage this energy transition so it's not chaotic, so that the bottom billion don't starve, don't get more poor. And honestly, that's what we saw last year. We saw hundreds, millions more people fall into extreme poverty, fall into famine. And so thinking about doing this not in an ideological way where everything we do is only through a lens of reducing emissions, but doing that in partnership with making sure that our material well-being is met. Previously released government documents indicate that the pursuit of the target of net zero emissions will be disruptive for some parts of the economy. That's pretty intuitive. And the oil and gas sector is amongst those projected to be disproportionately affected, which seems notable since it's a pretty significant source of employment, particularly in Alberta, and has played a key role in recent decades of providing labor demand for mid-skilled workers. It's interesting, though, Heather, that while we've spent a lot of time on the distributional effects of the carbon tax on household budgets, there hasn't seemed to been the same attention paid to the distributional effects of employment losses from stringent climate policies across regions or sectors. What do you think is behind that? Why do you think so much policy scholarship and government policymaking seems to diminish the employment risks for certain people and places? So this idea of just transition, again, when you look at it in a Canadian context and a global commodities context, around 2015, I think, is when the idea of just transition starts to circulate kind of in global circles. What happened then? It was the commodities bust. So we were in a commodities boom from about 2004 to 2014. Energy was expensive. People remember, you know, barrel hit at $147 and then $2,008 in 2008, which would be like $250 today. Very expensive oil. It was a crisis. And, and then what happened? Shale revolution. The Americans became the world's biggest producer instead of the world's biggest importer. And we got another 10, billion, 10 million barrels a day on the market and it made energy cheap. So starting in 2015, energy is cheap. And if you look at the oil sands, the oil sands had the very bad luck of coming online almost at the exact same time as shale did. And so where it was a more expensive, but at you know $180 a barrel, still very profitable. But then now we're competing with the United States at the exact time that they stopped needing our oil. And so it looked like oil patches in Canada was very down. People people did lose their job. We you know we lost I think 100,000 jobs in in Alberta. A tremendous amount. It was you know so huge, but the, I think it it gave people the idea that we were transitioning. We didn't need that oil anymore. There was no market for the oil. But it it's actually a cycle, not a transition. And now we're seeing the other side of that cycle. And the oil sands, you know, we saw it last year, but even at $80 WTI, they are printing money right now. And if we get to 100, most people expect we will get to 100 in the next six months. It's it's just pure cash flow on top of that. The royalties that Alberta is getting from the oil sands, again, we're not talking about $1 or $2 billion. We're talking about $10 or $15 billion just to the province. So so the jobs are there, you know, uh, in January when they were pushing through just transition legislation, which thankfully they thought better of. But in January when they were doing that, I think the unemployment rate in the oil patch was like 2.1%. So they're saying, oh, we need to help. And this is this is the line. We need to help these poor oil and gas workers. There's no more jobs for them. They've lost their jobs. Well, that was the 2015 reality for sure. But it had to do with the cycle and the markets and not with the an end of a global demand for, for oil. And now we know, you know, and people also had a fantasy that 2019 was going to be the peak in global oil demand. Whether that's good or not, it wasn't the peak. Uh, We're going to hit the peak again this year. And we're going to hit the peak every year for the next decade, probably for sure. So sometime in the 2030s, I hope, we all hope, you know, that we reduce our global oil demand. 
but there is absolutely no reason to artificially shut in Canadian oil and gas, especially as shale is starting to plateau and decline, especially as Russia and OPEC are getting a larger global market share. One of the practical challenges with the net zero target is that it involves aligning a lot of different policies. Uh, The electric vehicle mandate is a good example. For it to ultimately work, we need to align mining regulations with manufacturing incentives and charging infrastructure and broader electrification and consumer demand and all the rest. You wrote in a recent op-ed that Canadian climate policy increasingly looks like, quote, a Jenga tower. (laughs) Having spent some time in government myself, well, I think it's a good analogy. I'm somewhat sympathetic that it's hard, perhaps even impossible, to pull so many policy levers, including some that reside at different orders of government at the same time. Heather, talk about the inherent challenge of building a coherent and mutually supporting climate strategy. Are we going to have to just live with a certain amount of inefficiency, transaction costs, and suboptimal outcomes? So from a purely economic theoretical perspective, no, that's what the carbon tax is for. The carbon tax makes all those decisions for you. It makes carbon into, you know, whatever they say, an externality, puts a price on carbon. And so the market will find all the ways that are slightly, you know, cheaper with slightly slightly less carbon emissions. And so, so even from a, you know, a small C conservative perspective, I can say, you know, that makes sense. That seems like the, the lowest transaction cost, the most efficient way to reduce emissions. And you agree carbon is bad and, and, and bad for, you know, you know, the environment and human health. But then it's so so if they did that, they got it through, they convinced us all. Then why are these what are these other four emissions reductions been on top of that for? You know, so I'll I'll give you an example, the the ZEV mandate, zero emissions vehicle mandate. The the equivalent carbon tax of the ZEV mandate in Canada is about four hundred dollars a ton. So right now, you know, we're we're paying what I don't know, what are we at? Sixty-five or seventy-five dollars, it's going up to one seventy. And the ZEV mandate is the equivalent of a $400 tax. So like a very expensive, very inefficient way. I think in Norway, everyone loves how many electric vehicles Norway has. Their subsidy is the equivalent of $700 a ton. There are far cheaper ways, like methane, reducing methane emissions, which you can do for $20, $40, $60, you know, depending on the source, to reduce emissions. If you just cared about reducing emissions, you wouldn't put money into a battery factory. You wouldn't put money into into ZEP subsidies. So, so it's and and you know when I talk about it, the Jenga tower. You know, other people call it a pancake. Other people call it you know a Frankenstein. <laughs> and it's Soviet. It's Soviet style planning. You know that that you think you think from Ottawa, you can put in these mandates and control the economy that way. So. Like I say, so we have clean fuel regulations where you have to make the fuel cleaner. It means importing a lot of ethanol from the United States is what it means. But then they they want all the refiners to invest, to have all this clean fuel that is now a mandate as of today. But also refiners, we don't want any demand for your product by 2035 when we want to have an electric vehicle. So why would any refiner invest? And this is Irving Oil's position. They're threatening to leave New Brunswick which is a huge deal for Atlantic Canada. Why would they invest the money into improving their refineries and changing their fuel makeup? Very expensive, different jurisdictions. They had to do it for different customers, extremely inefficient. But in 2035, we don't want any demand for your product. And then we have a ZEV mandate at the same time as we say, we also need clean electricity standard. 
So we're, we have to replace all of our aging current electricity infrastructure. We have to make all the natural gas and coal into clean electricity somehow with our regulatory system. And by the way, we're going to add 25% demand to that system with our electric vehicle mandate. So it's just, it, it's, it's physically impossible. And then, you know, and then what I look at, the critical minerals do not exist in this world. The mines do not exist in the world. Not only that, Canada is competing with United States, which has 12 times the buying power, you know, 12 times the money, and the European Union, who actually needs to get off, you know, Russian oil and gas. Ours is a choice. Theirs is energy security, but we're going to, we're all going to compete over the same small amount of transponders and copper. And not to mention the global south, that's just the one billion of us. That's the rich billion of us. We are going to leave nothing for the global south to electrify you know, because we're competing over these scarce resources. So again, it, we are doing insane things that are predictably insane when, <laughs> okay, just put in put in the carbon tax, let the market decide. If, if I can just say in parentheses, Heather, you mentioned projections that the electric vehicle mandate would lead to a 25% increase in electricity demand is a piece of the puzzle that is often ignored from these debates. The idea just that you could impose a mandate and somehow it would resolve itself without accounting for the various ways in which such a fundamental transition in transportation would have these secondary effects or secondary consequences is a good example, I think, of your Jenga Tower metaphor. It is. I just want to add one thing there, Sean, because people need to think about this, is redundancy in energy really matters. When you say we're going to electrify everything, that sounds to me like we are going to be twice as vulnerable as we are in a system where we have diesel and gasoline and natural gas. So that all of a sudden, when you have a, a brownout or a blackout, that means you have zero energy. Whereas before, at least there was a whole, you know, you could still have heat, you could still move your car. It's, so it's a very, again, it's absolutely not considering reliability or energy security. And that's a good segue to a speech you gave in June entitled Energy in the Age of Pragmatism in which you argue that there are three key goals when it comes to energy policy, reliability, affordability, and sustainability, and that these different goals function as something of a hierarchy. That is to say, sustainability is important, but it's unlikely to sustain itself as a goal if it undermines reliability and affordability. Why don't you elaborate a bit on these three goals, what you call the, quote, three legs of the energy stool, including how they interrelate and how thinking of them as a hierarchy would influence policymaking differently than it's currently being carried out? So I think affordability and reliability is the mandate of a utility company. That is their job. You know, uh, so SAS Power, Hydro, Quebec, what, what have you. Their mandate is to provide affordable, reliable power to you and energy to you. And why? Because in Canada, we'll die in January without reliable energy. Like, it's, you know, people do. More people died in Europe last year from, from the cold than from COVID. But so, and now we've added sustainability. Now the discussion last 20 years, like I said, has evolved to say, wait a second, you know, climate change is very bad. You know, it'll, it'll affect a lot of things. Um, it's causing extreme weather. We need to also consider sustainability and people, yeah, sure. You, of course we do. No one's against that. And so it's come to be talked about as three legs of a stool. We need these three things. But you know what, what I observed and what I want to point out and that Europe showed in the, in the wake of the Russian Ukrainian war is that actually there, there's still very clearly a hierarchy that you will, you will invest in sustainability only after you have the affordability and the reliability lined up. 
and this is, you know, a line I heard and I use all the time. Any one of us 8 billion humans will choose dirty energy over no energy. Hmm. You will always choose dirty energy over no energy because no energy means you're not surviving. And so, so what does that look like in practice? Germany moving back to coal. That's what it looks like in practice. China moving, you know, into more coal, paying any price for LNG from the United States, pricing out Pakistan, pricing out poor countries. So it's just, it's the pragmatism that, yeah, I think we we're able, you know, in our society to take energy security and the affordability and the reliability part so for granted, which no one before a hundred years ago could ever take that for granted, that we forgot that it's not, it's not, you know, inherent to our system, that you actually have to work at those things. And and in many ways, we are undermining the affordability and reliable reliability questions. And, you know, there's a feeling out west, and I'll just say it. As soon as you get some brownouts in Ontario, the public narrative is going to change. I want to follow up on the idea that we're living in an age of pragmatism when it comes to energy policy. Let me ask a two-part question. First, why don't you elaborate a bit on how Russia's invasion of Ukraine has affected policy thinking about energy, climate change, and energy security? And second, what might be the practical effects of a more pragmatic approach? Should, for instance, energy exporting countries like Canada reduce the ambitions of their emissions targets for 2030 in order to strengthen global energy security in the short and medium term? So again, we lived in, in from 2014 to 2022, was an era of very cheap commodities, very historically cheap commodities, very cheap energy, and low interest rates. As a result, low interest rates and low inflation. And you, I think, you know, we have such short memories as humans that you kind of got, you thought this is a new normal, you know, mm-hmm. and, and energy will always be cheap. We're never going to run out of anything again. But of course, like I say, commodities come in cycles and now we're starting. And the, and the Russian invasion of Ukraine kind of jackstarted that next cycle. And, you know, we forgot that inflation was a problem. Inflation is a huge problem for human, for human well-being. And, and everyone thinks we're in a lull and it's going to come back, you know, starting in it's already still there in Europe, but it'll come back for us too starting the winter. So, so how do we get shaken out of this, you know, taking energy security for granted? You know, obviously, and people forget this energy, the price of natural gas and the availability of natural gas was already a problem for Europe in 2021. And mm. that is why Putin invaded when he did is because mm. he thought they can't, they are not in a position to negotiate. I have leverage now. This is a great time for me to, because they can't cut off their supply because they need it. Well, turns out they, you know, bought a tremendous amount from the United States. And turns out, you know, Germany has had to de-industrialize. But you saw how, how shallow, I guess, you know, imagine thinking this from the global south, where you've been told at all the COP meetings that you need to change, that we all need to do better, that we need to reduce. And then the second there's trouble, in Europe and the United <laughs> States, this is a true fact. Look it up. Europe subsidized energy at a cost of 800 billion euros in that, you know, between fall 2021 and, and you know, a couple months ago. It's probably updated now. 800 billion euros. That's well over a trillion Canadian dollars. That And they're, I mean, it's subsidizing fossil fuels. A lot of it is, sub, is fossil fuels. Because otherwise people will, st- <laughs> well, businesses will break down, you know, you're deindustrializing, you can't, all these things. In the United States, what did we see? Gas price started to go up after the war. It's coming into driving season. You know, people are going on their vacation in the United States, summer 2022, heading into the midterms. 
what does Biden do? Gas is going to hit $5 a gallon in the U.S., which is still by any other you know, developed country a cheap price for gas. But it's too much for the Americans politically to bear. Biden releases 180 million barrels out of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to keep the price of gas low enough to get to the November midterm elections. That's what happened. So, so just imagine the gall you must have if you're in the South, you're using a tenth of the of the energy, you've been moralized and and you know hectored. And and it, again, like I say, it's the first sign of political trouble. All these other countries, you know, subsidize the hell out of their fossil fuels. Hey, Hub listeners, there's a lot of gloomy news out there these days when it comes to the state and future of Canadian journalism. We're seeing mass layoffs across some of the country's biggest media organizations. We're seeing news disappear from some of the country's biggest social media platforms. Well, what does this all mean for The Hub? Well, thanks to you, our loyal readers and listeners, The Hub is thriving. We're seeing record engagement across our various platforms and offerings, adding new voices, series, and content, and all of this would not be possible without your support. If you haven't already become a donor to The Hub, consider doing so now. For as little as 25 cents a day, you can make a major contribution to our ongoing operations and our ability to be a credible and authoritative alternative to much the mainstream media. Make your donation now at www.thehub.ca. I really liked a, a paper you recently co-authored on what you called, quote, climate clubs. Let me ask you, Heather, what are climate clubs? What might be their relevance to a country with the emissions profile and export orientation of Canada? And how might the Canadian government go about building alliances to steer global climate policy in a direction that better reflects the country's national interests? Great question. So if your listeners were confused, I do believe climate change is, is a thing and, and, and a problem. We need to address it. It's just, I think, a chaotic energy transition has worse costs than reducing emissions by 2030 or 2035 or some kind of, you know, kind of abstract year. So we did, you know, at MLI, and we're a small C conservative think tank, but, but but so what is the efficient approach? What is the economic approach to reducing carbon emissions? And there is this idea of carbon clubs, and it's, you know, has been led by Germany as part of their G7 presidency two years ago. But from a Canadian perspective, we have a carbon tax. But guess what? We are a very resource-intensive economy, export-intensive economy, and our biggest consumer and, and competitor is the United States next door that doesn't have a carbon tax. And so for a lot of industries, this is a huge disadvantage. And so in theory, in, in principle, I don't have an issue with the carbon tax, especially for consumption. But for our export industries, like, like agriculture in particular, uh, but mining oil that don't have to don't have those costs of the carbon tax. It makes them less competitive on an international stage. So the practical effect, absolutely, everyone will agree, is that it reduces our competitiveness globally. And so, so on the bright side, the EU is also putting in um, carbon border tariff adjustments. I forget the exact order of those. And, and so that actually makes, you know, now we'd be, we'd be more competitive. Now we're one of the feared jurisdictions that won't be subject to those tariffs. We've already, we've already invested. We've already felt the pain. We've already adjusted here in Canada. So that's good. The United States, even though they reject the carbon tax, are also looking under the Democrats of imposing some kind of equivalent tariff or 
somehow valuing a lower emissions, you know, better than average kind of gold standard imports for some of these things, willing to pay a premium. In an age of scarcity, do I do I think everyone's going to pay a premium? I'm not sure at all, but I think at some point, at some point we will. So what does this all leave for Canada? So the idea is that for some sectors, the problem is the competitiveness. Don't have a problem paying more for carbon, but all of your if your competitors are not, then that's a real issue for you. So in some sectors, what are the sectors that make sense? Say steel, where there aren't that many producers, where you could put a carbon, a carbon club for everyone that produces steel and apply the same tariff on all those steel producers. So they're so they all have an incentive to reduce their carbon emissions, but they are not at a competitive disadvantage. You could probably do it with something like shipping. Again, global sectors where people in the club represent 70 or 80% of producers. And so, you know, you you have a, a large part of the, of the market is covered. Um, shipping, a cement, things that are, are more, you know, concentrated and that people are willing to play ball. So that is, you know, from a theoretical perspective, that makes some sense. You're not you're not putting in anyone out of business. You're making everyone equally competitive and giving the same incentives to reduce carbon emissions. And so for Canada, that would be actually a big boon because we're already paying. We're already doing the paying. It'd be nice to have some of the advantages, you know, recognized by your customers too. Let's turn the conversation to in Indigenous involvement in the natural resource economy. The McDonald Laurie Institute has long championed the notion of economic reconciliation rooted in true partnerships on natural resource projects, including pipelines, mines, and all the rest. Yet the message and story of progress at times can be overwhelmed by the inherent negativity of so much commentary and reporting on the place of Indigenous peoples in Canadian life. Let's just start with that dichotomy. Heather, can you paint a bit of a picture of these partnerships and their sophistication and magnitude? Yeah. So so we mentioned before the show, Sean, I'm a Saskatchewan girl and, you know, kind of started out really working on Northern and Indigenous development. That's that's where my real expertise was. And in the last boom, you know, like I say, there's a big commodities boom, 2008, 2009. There was, you know, I helped start the Saskatchewan Indigenous Economic Development Network. I've been on the board ever since. And at that time, it was about how do we ensure Indigenous nations get part of this resource boom, that potash was booming, uranium was booming, oil was booming. And so it was all about the get businesses in the procurement supply chain to develop economic development corporations, have good governance, all these things. Spent a lot of time doing that. And then it was almost a shock to me. This is where I say I was radicalized with the Wet'suwet'en blockades in 2020, where 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 I had been, I've spent a decade working with Indigenous nations, First Nations that wanted, that were developing ActEV Corps, that were trying to get contracts, negotiating IBAs. It was like, oh, great, there's a mine, you know, in our, you know, there's potential for economic development. And then, and then the narrative from the mainstream media, I'll say, was, is, is, you know, all the, there's protests. Indigenous people are against this. Good Indigenous, good, the, the good First Nations people are against oil and gas. They don't want this. We need, they need our international support. They need your donations. The money from, like I say, the green establishment was flowing in. And then you knew, though, this was available information that the 21st Nations along Coastal Gas Link had all signed agreements and had and were in support. Some of them had had referendums. Years had gone in to getting good deals with TC Energy. The work had been done. Companies had been developed. Training had been done. And, and would you know that? And it's just like, for me, it was the insult that that 
that voice was just ignored. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't even criticized. It just dismissed that those first nations people that supported it just didn't even exist to journalists and to politicians. And, you know, Carolyn Bennett went there and um, met with the five hereditary chiefs and not the 20 elected chiefs, you know, are we, and then and people say, oh, those are Indian Act chiefs, like just a dismissive, we've imposed a system on them. They have democracy, they've been working within it. But the second it's inconvenient to your ideology, you just say, you know, that's not, you know, that's imposed, that's Indian Act. But who would, you, you know, <laughs> you ran for election, your people, you know, reelected you, you stood up and that's, and that's how you're dismissed. So that was a turning point for me. I've, you know, I've written a lot of speeches, you know, for Indigenous leaders, op-eds, help them with op-eds. And then I thought, you know, they're always out in the front line of fire. Mm. They're called greedy. They're called corrupt. And we expect them to go out there and advocate. And I thought, I better get out there in front with them because it's it's not fair. It's not fair to put them in the position all the time. And so that's where I've been doing more advocacy. And also, you know, I will have their back. And one of the things that we did is we did a poll because of my experiences, I was so certain that, in fact, most Indigenous people want resource development. They just didn't want the bad kind. You know, and this is what they'll always say. We're not opposed to resource development. We're opposed to being left out. Of course. And for 100 years, they got the raw end of the deal for sure. And so now it's about, well, let's find good solutions where they do have benefits, where they do get the jobs, the own source revenues, where they do have some control, where they have, you know, can move away from cultural sites, where they can protect some of the species that are important to them. And we're finding ways, we're finding ways to do that. And so industry, Indigenous relations have gone great. The poll, I said, we pulled national poll, very expensive to pull Indigenous people. We did it twice. So it wasn't, you know, no, because then people would say, oh, this wasn't a real poll. Okay, we did it again. Same error of margin, 65% of Indigenous people support resource development. Majority support oil and gas specifically, majority support mining specifically and across the country. The highest support for oil and gas was in BC. That was a surprise to me. And that particular number wasn't statistically significant. There wasn't enough of a sample in BC, but of the ones that we did poll was the highest in BC. In that vein, some, including at the McDonald-Laurie Institute, have speculated about whether anti-development policies, such as stringent climate regulations, might be subjected to the same duty to consult as would be the case to get a project approved. Heather, I won't ask you to weigh into constitutional theory here, but talk a bit about the importance of bringing Indigenous voices, including partners on resource projects, into the discussion about the trade-offs between climate change, energy policy, and Indigenous economic development. Yeah, and this is where, you know, like I say, I think the lack of pragmatism stems from the fact that we have been able to take energy security, especially in Canada, food security for granted for so long that you you just think it's it's a constant in your life and you don't worry about it. But climate change is something that might give you some concern. Obviously, that's not the case if you live on reserve or if you live in a remote community that you don't take food security for granted and you don't take energy security for granted and you don't take having your material needs met for granted. And so I have found personally that uh, most Indigenous people, especially Indigenous communities and, in, in, you know, on reserve and in rural areas are very pragmatic. And I've learned many things from them about that, that they do see the need to balance the, you know, they're living with poverty and it's important to them to address that poverty, that that is by far the most urgent threat to the majority of their members and their neighbors and their family is the poverty that they're facing, the addictions that that causes the lost hope. And just, you know, the, a poor, poor, lower life expectancy, uh, just no opportunities. And so I, you know, at a 
uh, a matriarch, I will say, in her culture, um, who is an, also an elected leader that I respect very much, has told me that when it comes down to it, when you you know we, when there is a trade off, she would always choose her people first, and and so would you if your family was in the same situation. And that's the you know and that's the message is if you're so lucky that you're in the top five percent of you know the, the kind of the global income scale that you don't have to worry about these things. Once in a while, think about the other 95% and because they will choose dirty energy over no energy and all your efforts will be for naught if you don't address the fact that they don't have energy first off or food first off and foremost. Well said. As someone who follows and studies energy a lot, what technologies or innovations are you most excited about? Where do you see the potential for squaring the circle between the environment and the economy when it comes to the energy transition? So I think we are having an energy transition. We will have an energy transition. It's just 2030, 2035, even 2050 metrics globally are just, you know, illogical, not not physically possible. There's 8 billion people. We spent a, a century making this energy system. You can't you can't change it as fast as they want, but we will change it. And, you know, if, if you think about, you know, energy at a physical level, and I'm a social scientist, <laughs> I'll get into some deep waters here, but <laughs> obviously... You know, fossil fuels are great because they're very energy dense, they're transportable, and they're very accessible. You have them on every continent. That That's what made them such a great source of energy and that, you know, humankind proliferated as, the, as we grew. But there's a better source of energy out there, and that's nuclear. It needs even less resources, um, less resource intensive, less land intensive. On the other end of the spectrum is renewables. You need more land, you need more inputs, you need more resources to get the same amount of energy out of renewables. And so for me, the, the answer is nuclear. And people, you know, people will think of Chernobyl or Fukushima. And it's kind of, you know, nuclear is the is like the the airlines of the energy industry, the lowest deaths, you know, absolutely the lowest deaths, but it's the one that everyone is afraid of the most. But, you know, but the people have been working on it. We have some better technology than the Soviets did in the 70s and 80s. And this will be called the fourth generation of nuclear advanced reactors. Often, you know, often they are small modular reactors, but they don't have to be, are, are inherently safe, where the laws of physics prevent them from melting down, rather than relying on, you know, if you've seen the HBO show, you know, the kind of a series of errors where things can go wrong. Maybe, you know, maybe there are some fault lines you don't want to put on, but also a smaller modular reactor has less of a, you know, a payload than, you know, a, a you know, one, a one gigawatt reactor. Some of them don't need, don't need the same kind of water uh, source, so you, they're more flexible. So we are applying the knowledge sector finally, you know, to the nuclear sector, and it's wildly exciting. And, and I, in 200 years, do I think we'll have solar panels? Or, or have an internal combustion engine? No. In 200 years, I think everything will be nuclear. We probably need some hydrogen because sometimes it's nice to have a fuel that's stored somewhere. Final question. You co-authored an op a Globe and Mail op-ed earlier this year on moon mining. You wrote, quote, space mining is real and Canada has an advantage in this market, unquote. What do you mean? What could be mined on the moon? How practical is it to set up lunar mining operations? And why do you think Canada could be well-placed to, to play a role in such a development? Yeah. And, I, you know, I came here with the same, this is the first time you're hearing it. You're probably like, this will, you know, can't even make money, you know, mining copper in Yukon. <laughs> <laughs> How are you going to make money mining it on the moon? And that's, so that was my same skepticism, but that's not what it is. Why do we need to mine on the moon? It's because we are establishing lunar bases. 
Within eight years, it is NASA's plan and the Canadian Space Energy has the same plan. And China and Russia have their own plan for their own lunar base in a decade to have human, permanent human presence on the moon. And so you need to mine the moon to support that permanent human presence. So it's about it's about operations to get the oxygen and probably hydrogen because you can split, you know, split water. So, you know, if you find water, you can have hydrogen and oxygen, not to mention you need the water. And that's, you know, those are the, you know, the basis for, for life. So finding a place on the moon where you have that and turning it into these, into these essential components. Here's the other thing. If you can get hydrogen off the moon, if you want to go to deep space and we do, you know, and that's already in the plans, we want to go to Mars for sure. Getting out of our atmosphere is extremely energy intensive and you're going to spend a lot of your payload just getting out of our atmosphere. Well, wouldn't it be great if you could gas up at a lunar space station, mm. if you could get some hydrogen off of the moon and fill up on hydrogen before you keep going? Yes, it would be great. That's what's going to happen. That's the only way we're going to get into deep space is with these lunar gas stations. So that's what mostly it is right now. The third thing, though, is that there is something on the moon that may be so valuable that it's actually worth mining it on the moon and bringing it to the earth. And that's the isotope of helium mm. because there's helium three on the moon that really doesn't exist on earth naturally, but it's there in the moon and you can use it for fusion. So right now our nuclear power is, is, is fission. And then, you know, the big breakthrough in the, in the California lab a couple of months ago was fusion and helium three is very good for fusion because it's missing one of the, one of the, like this is where I get out of, my, you know, out of my exercises. This isn't the electrons or whatever, but it, it's less radiation. And when you that when you do fusion with it, there's no radiation. So better than better than fission because there's no radioactive material coming out of it. So if you could get helium three out of the moon, and it's light, so if you brought a ton of it back, you'd have a ton of helium three. You know, I, I think it's in the op, and I forget the numbers, but you know, a ton of it could be worth billions of dollars because. Mm-hmm. Because it would it would power you know billions of households. A couple tons of this stuff could could you know provide a tremendous tremendous amount of energy. So that's why why does it make sense for Canada? We're already good at the space arms, the space robotics, the things that you would need to mine remotely, and we're good at mining, really good at mining, and we're good at mining in remote spaces. And so if you think that these things are going to happen, if you think helium three might be a thing, for God's sakes, for once in our lives, let's get there first. You know, we're the best at it. Let's not wait for someone to learn from all the things we've done for the last hundred years and then scoop us and make the money off moon mining. You're here. What an insightful answer um, as what's been an insightful conversation. Heather Exner Perot, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thanks, Sean. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Clutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky-Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.